Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm your host, Amanda Bullock. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. This week features a discussion on the late writer Ursula K. Le Guin's legacy of pacifism and environmentalism. Our moderator is Theo Downs Le Guin, Ursula's son and literary executor. Theo is in conversation with Oregon-based writers Juhei Kim, author of the novel Beast of a Little Land, a finalist for the 2022 Dayton Literary Peace Prize, and Michelle Ruiz-Kyle, author most recently of the young adult novel Summer in the City of Roses, which was a finalist for the inaugural Ursula K. Le Guin Prize for Fiction. Ursula's work wrestled with climate destabilization and the destruction of the natural world for decades, since the 1960s, and in her speculative fiction, she was consistently committed to the values of pacifism and environmentalism. In her speech at the 2014 National Book Awards, where she accepted the medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters, Ursula said, Hard times are coming, when we'll be wanting the voices of writers who can see alternatives to how we live now, and can see through our fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies to other ways of being, and even imagine some real grounds for hope. Juhei Kim and Michelle Ruiz-Kyle are two of those voices that we need now. In this conversation, Juhei and Michelle discuss how they came to, and returned, to Ursula K. Le Guin's work, her influence on their writing, and how they are carrying her legacy forward, including the responsibility of the artist as a humanitarian. The conversation was recorded in front of a live audience at Literary Arts on July 15th, 2022. We'll join moderator Theo Downs Le Guin as he invokes the sunny summer Friday evening. Hi everyone. It takes a rare dedication to literature to be here on such a gorgeous, sunny summer Portland evening and a Friday at that, so thank you so much for turning out. Uh, I can tell you on good authority, or at least a son's authority, that my mother would not be pleased if we spent too much time focusing on her, <laughs> despite the title and the picture up there. But I did want to start uh, in, in uh, her honor and ask both of you a little bit about how you came to Ursula's writing. She has been described as the rare writer who can be there for you as a child through to an adult as, uh, as a writer. And I'm curious, when did you first encounter her writing and how do you relate to it now? Hello. Well, um, I first encountered the Earthsea books um, in the deep, dark bowels of hell. <laughs> Actually, my middle school library, okay? (laughs) That's where it was, and that's where I hid out a lot. And I was drawn to the books because they had a brown boy on the cover, and I thought, what's this? And I thought it was so beautiful. And so Earthsea became, you know, a a favorite of mine through junior high and kind of kept me going, kept me in another world. And then I sort of uh, fell away from uh, Ursula's books, and then I discovered Cat Wings as a young mother. And I feel like, still feel like Hot Wings is a really beautiful and brilliant 
um, parable for difference and the way that difference can play out um, in a family. And also, especially the book Jane on Her Own, which is our favorite, a book about trauma and uh, recovery and resilience and gaining agency and voice, which is a big subject for me as a writer. And it was so beautiful for me as a mother to have a story to read to my girls that's also spoke to my own experience in a way that was like appropriate for them and kind of cathartic, I think, for all of us. It was such a favorite of ours. Um, and then later, I came to um, more of her work through um, the Village Free School, which was a free school project that started, um, oh my gosh, probably about almost 20 years ago now, and was um, was started by people, a group of young people who were big fans of Le Guin and who I'm very, very, very certain read The Dispossessed <laughs> because you could tell by the way things were going. Yeah. Um, and so now I'm, you know, st uh, uh, still a really big fan and have loved steering the craft and loved the guidance as a writer and also really enjoyed, we were just talking about Tahanu, which um, takes one of the characters from, or, well, a couple of the characters, main characters from the tombs of Atuan and and brings them into um, middle age, which is probably around my age. So it was really great to sort of see those characters and what happened next. I love that you found her child's books as an adult. And I'm also really glad that you found one of the uh, Earthsea books that had a brown boy on the cover because for decades she struggled to get that before she had control over uh, cover designs, and so in the 60s and 70s, it was often a challenge to get anything beyond a kind of uh, white fantasy trope cover. That doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> uh, my first encounter with Ursula Le Guin was her short story, Coming of Age in Carhide. And I read it in college in my early 20s, and it was a, quite an opportune story to read at that time because it explores gender fluidity and sexuality. And it was quite ahead of its time when it was written in the 1990s, and even in the mid-2000s when I read it as a college student. And uh, I hadn't known that these types of subjects were appropriate to discuss in literature. I, had been mostly reading uh, the so-called classic canon and up until then. And I hadn't known that this was even a possibility. And next I read The Dispossessed and what really struck me about it was um, that this was such an opposition to uh, the solipsism of contemporary literature. And I was very refreshed by it, and she inspired me as a writer to pursue that type of outward-facing fiction as well, um, fiction that relies strongly on world-building as well as a kind of innocence and idealism. How I relate to her differently now is not just as a reader, but also as a writer. When I encounter her works now, I am always driven to figure out what is it about Ursula that um, really compels readers in the way that she does. I think that she is quite singular in that way. Uh, I, I think she's matchless in the influence that she's had in both her readers as well as other writers. So I'm always trying to learn from her craft how she was able to achieve that. 
I think uh, college is the perfect age to read Coming of Age in Carhide too. That's just kind of incredible. <laughs> it's almost like a manual. <laughs> Juhi, you said in an interview that in your late 20s, you, you were compelled to come up with a mission statement for your writing. And I'm, I'm going to throw that back at you. <laughs> your statement was to use your talent for writing to save nature and reduce animal suffering. And I know that uh, subsequent to the publication of Beasts of a Little Land, you have put that into direct action by donating some of the proceeds to uh, an animal conservation nonprofit, a big cat conservation nonprofit. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, how that mission statement actually infuses your writing. And so as opposed to what you do after the book is published in the process of writing, how do you, how do you think about that and incorporate that into your process? So my mission statement is the single most important part of my writing practice. Every morning I go for a walk and there is a school playground. Um, you can sit there <laughs> when it's not in session. <laughs> so I sit on one of the benches and I think about my mission statement. I come home and it carries me through the rest of the day. And if any of you in the audience are aspiring writers, I highly recommend you to create your own mission statement as well because life of an artist is paved with thorns, and if you have the why, um, then you can overcome almost any problem. And um, Theo, as I recall, uh, this, this question also involved the philosophy, how, how your belief and philosophy drives you as a writer. Um, so my, my belief um, and philosophy, I, I have been vegan since the age of 19. And uh, you know, veganism is the single most impactful thing you can do as an individual to reduce your impact on climate change, and and that's where art comes in for me. Um, my goal as an artist is to awaken people to the moral significance of sentient living beings, and I think that's a very Ursula-appropriate thing to say. Um, by sentient beings, I do um, distinguish between uh, non-complex organisms that are driven to reproduce without having complex emotions or social relationships, like bacteria. I, I do think that there are certain more prioritized living beings, but uh, in short, I think that my view isn't uh, anthropocentric, but it's biocentric, and it, it informs my work. Um, my work is biocentric in the sense that uh, it focuses on animals, plants, human beings, as well as the planet's dignity and moral significance. And how I get people to care about that is through um, craft of storytelling. That's where storytelling comes in for me. And uh, when you succeed as an artist is when you achieve emotional poignancy. Because if you can get people to, to be moved emotionally, then you earn um, the privilege and the prerogative to speak moral truth. So that's how my philosophy informs my writing. Michelle, I, I see your work as similarly non-anthropocentric, animals are at the same level as humans. In fact, they often merge <laughs> in various ways. And I also think that um, you do a beautiful job of centering us in nature, even when it's an urban environment, and that nature is, is kind of a character 
uh, in your books where there's so much description of physical environment that it's, it's always there. And I actually wanted to read a brief passage, which is just so very Portland, um, I think. If, if takes the street in, opening all her senses as wide as she can. The sidewalk is clean and smells of summer rain. The street is lined with shabby little houses with overgrown yards and weedy parking strips planted with sunflowers and rosemary and lamb's ear that spill over on the sidewalks. Roses are everywhere, climbing the telephone poles and clinging to fences and front porches cluttered with gardening shoes, children's toys, and boxes of recycling. That's definitely my Portland. <laughs> many of ours, I think. And there are many passages like that where um, they, they, seem, they seem almost glancing references to natural environment, but they really, they're so uh, central to the book. So same question for you, really. How, how did you get there? <laughs> how do you think about that when you're writing? Um, I think for me, it is really just um, fi I, having found a way to express the way the world feels to me. So, um, you know, I've, I've, always, I've always sort of felt, I've always felt at, I, I've always had a difficulty with um, the hierarchy that's supposed to exist between us and other living beings. And in, when, I get, when I write, it's like I get to just really indulge in the way that I want it to be. So it's like kind of that prerogative of mm. the world that, that as, you want, as you see it, as you wish others could see it. And so, um, you know, for me, animals play an incredibly strong part in my experience almost every day. I think I was telling you earlier about the deer that keeps visiting my yard at opportune moments. Um, in the writing of my most recent book, which you know, featured has, has a very strong deer theme going on, um, and so, but when the, when these things happen, right, I feel like partly they're happening because I'm noticing them. Like I'm sure they I'm sure the deer is everywhere, and I'm sure he's in like my neighbor's yards too. But I'm definitely paying attention in that way. I think I'm looking for um, I'm looking for companionship in the natural world. I'm looking for patterns that I can recognize, and I'm looking for, I think I'm honestly looking for friendship and relationship in the natural world. I think maybe it comes from being an only child. I'm thinking about you know, the relationship I had with the tree in my Nana's front yard that I would sit and read in that felt like a living being to me, like that was a person sort of. Um, you know, and the, and the cats and dogs that you know my family had, and 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 then just you know, as I as I began to learn about, you know, all of the different, like when I learned about birds, when I started getting into birding, then things really took a turn, because I, you know, um, actually my friend that got me into birding is is here right now, and when I started to understand, you know, the, their names and the differences between them and how to tell the difference, and, you know all of the birds that were constantly around, the magic just all of a sudden seemed to go up like several notches. And this was right around the time I was writing my first book. And I, as, as I paid more and more attention to the birds, other animals were just suddenly everywhere. And I, I think we need that, that re-enchantment of the world. I think that if we feel a part of the world and we can, um, we can participate in that enchantment, it definitely causes a little shift in how, how we look 
at the world around us, at each other, if we start wondering about, you know, the internal lives of, let's say, like the crows in town, I mean, something's going on there. <laughs> and I think it actually would be very wise to make friends with them. <laughs> because they're organized, and they communicate, and they remember. You know, so, so, so once that starts to happen, I think we all start to feel a little bit more connected to place and to one another, and it just, it just shifts things into a completely different gear. There's also a, a large element of mythology in both of your works, and of course, mythology offers a lot of great opportunities to explore how humans and other animals are related and what those transformations can look like. Thoughts about that? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, one of the things that were the founding blocks or inception point for my novel, Beasts of a Little Land, were Korean folk tales that I read growing up. And I literally read maybe thousands of these folk tales starring various animals and um, people, but most of all, the tiger, um, Korea. Uh, used to be uh, home to the Siberian tiger for about 5,000 years, and it only went extinct in the 20th century after a large amount, large-scale trophy hunting during the colonial period. So uh, the tiger um, shared its fate on a very small piece of land with people and so many different kinds of animals, and I was so fascinated by the fact that this apex predator set to reach almost 13 feet, according to some records, from nose to the tip of its tail, could live and thrive in such a small land with so many different kinds of animals as well as people. So what this tells me is that Korean culture is founded on this deep reverence and kinship with animals. This was what was taught to me from a very early age by reading these folk tales and myths. And I wanted to impart some of that in my novel. I absolutely loved the tiger parts in your novel. I mean, I was Me just like, yeah. I was like, yes! I was so happy. It's such a, it's a beautiful book, Beast of a Little It's amazing. Um, and I was so excited by it, too, because it was, you know, it was very grounded in history and reality. And yet, you know, you can't separate that from culture. And I feel like for me, it's it's also like that. I feel like I, I, my books are grounded in reality, um, but you know, the fantastic for me is often a way to express internal transformation and changes that you can't e that can't be easily um, externalized into sort of like an exciting plot. You know, it's it, it has to come th th that that kind of transformation, and even like in your book, the way that the tiger. And, and its loss can really symbolize the change and the, you know, the devastation of colonialism. I think that you know, those kinds of big things sometimes are suited very, very well to going back to some sort of mythic or um, you know, archetypal root, something that we can all, because the, like, the tiger is so perfect. It's like such a magical, un, almost unimaginably like large, powerful, beautiful. Like, why are they so beautiful? You know, they're just, they're so beautiful. Um, they're mesmerizing. And so I think about, 
you know, things that have that mythic um, resonance are such a great way to ground story. So like if you are a writer and there's something that's always fascinated you and, you know, that you've been very passionately interested in, you know, to, to dig deeper in and you'll probably find some sort of archetypal or mythic root there. Usually that kind of like deep feeling um, you know, you can you can take you can use the you know follow the thread through the labyrinth and find your way back to 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 myth. And for me, with um, with Summer in the City of Roses, I was reading. I was really going and trying to check out the um, the less traveled grim fairy tales, and I found the story of brother and sister. And I was so so moved by the love that the siblings had for one another and um, I my kids are very close as well with one another and I felt like there was something about that relationship with the brother and sister that really reminded me of my daughters and so I, I sort of started there and then found a lot of the things that I wanted to talk about that I didn't even know I wanted to talk about were revealed to me through my fascination with the story so sometimes just you know following those stories that that interest you that you never stop thinking about, I think, can be um, a great way in if you're if you're any kind of an artist, actually. And I, I think you made some references in that book to the darker sides of grim fairy tales, and they are, of course, as most of us have read them, much less dark than they originally were, as they were translated and made appropriate for a Christian reading audience. They became much more anodyne, and if you can find the old versions of them, they are incredibly dark and terrifying, uh, which Ursula was a big fan of, by the way. Um, and she read us that version, not that. <laughs> yeah. um, you, you said a moment ago, my, my book is grounded in reality, so let's, let's unpack that concept for a minute, <laughs> what that means. I was thinking in uh, reading both of your most recent novels uh, about, you know, is this realism or not? And I can't, I can't really say either of those books is contemporary realism, but I can't not. Uh, because there is so much fact and so much tangible uh, kind of lived experience that as a reader you feel you it feels true. So how do you consider that issue? Um, I, I don't want to force you to genre eyes here, but um, uh, what, what does it mean to ground your work in reality and how do you do that? So my book takes place in Korea from 1917 to about 1965. It's considered historical novel, and a, a quite a bit of historical research did go into it. And I was lucky enough to do uh, firsthand research because I am fluent in Korean and uncovered a lot of facts that were fascinating to me. I just want to touch back on what makes what makes this real and what part is mythical. And Michelle said something very important, and she said that your myths are grounded in culture. And it reminded me of a conversation uh, that I had had around magic realism um, with Latin American authors. And uh, the argument was that uh, some Latinx authors and writers feel that the constant labeling of contemporary fiction as magic realism is kind of a cultural appropriation because um, it developed in mid-century, mid-20th century to describe very specific group of Latin American authors who were writing in the tradition of Latin American thought. 
So for example, if you encounter in Gabriel Garcia Marquez, you encounter like a piece of furniture that suddenly starts to move in the kitchen, like the table starts moving six inches to the right. Mm. And then somebody who's watching that just goes, oh, that's just grandma. Well, that's not magic realism that we think of today in North America as some sort of whimsical touch to give um, playfulness to a basically realistic literature. That's possible because in that paradigm, that's how ancestors behave. Uh, my Korean novel has a lot of that. Ancestors come into play. Um, some, there's some metamorphosis. There's some mythical connection, past life connection. But that's not magic realism just kind of thrown in there to add spice to realism. It's actually how Koreans view the, our world, our connection to others, our connection to our loved ones. So in a sense that, to me, it's my book is pretty realistic, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if that answers. Yeah. Pretty much same, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, that, that's the thing is that, you know, I mean, it's kind of a flip way to say it, but I, when I was talking about my first book and people were asking me a lot about magic realism, I would, just be, I would say, oh yeah, you know, magical realism for me is just like a regular Tuesday. And <laughs> it's just because um, I, I do have I, I've always had, and I'm not certain if it's cultural, I come from a very assimilated Mexican-American family, and yet, and yet, I mean, ancestors were definitely present, there was a sense that we could definitely commune with our loved ones who were gone, and there was also this, um, this, this understanding that coincidence was something to really pay attention to. And actually, in my writing process, when usually there's a time when the coincidences begin to coalesce. You know, like uh, with my first book, there is a detail in the beginning of the book where the main character gets a tongue piercing. And later, after I had written a couple of drafts and I was feeling lost, I went and I actually researched um, the goddess that my character was named for. And I originally named her for actually a friend of my nephew's who I thought had a cute name, which was Soji. And then I looked at the goddess Soji Ketzel and I began to understand that, you know, I had tapped into something I hadn't meant to because that particular goddess has a feast day in which, um, in which one pierces one's tongue and then passes straws through the tongue for everything that they want to be cleansed of, that they feel they've done wrong. And for her, my, my character was also similarly cathartic. So it was just kind of this weird, I mean, I stood up in my little tiny active space closet office and you know, kind of freaked out and had to go take a walk because that was, I didn't expect that. I didn't know that was coming. But I do think that it, it, is, it is my reality, and on some level, it's a little bit, just a little bit heightened, just a little, in some places. But I still, I, I wouldn't say that the things that I write about couldn't happen. I mean, that deer that I mentioned, you know, came to visit me on um, the day that my book came out in hardcover last summer, and then I was away the day it came out in paperback this summer, but my family called and said, hey, guess who's in the backyard? I don't know. He, I don't think he looks at you know the pals' <laughs> emails or something. I don't know how he finds these things out, but he seems to have a kind of a sense of when to come say hello. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's a regular Tuesday for me, and it, it, it is, it is, um, it is as real as I can make it. I, I think it has emotional truth when 
perhaps it might not always have, um, it doesn't have ordinary truths. Mm -hmm. But on a non-ordinary day, you never know what might happen. I think it's entirely likely that a deer in Portland would read a Powell's email. But yeah, I mean, Ur Ursula did not love the phrase magical realism at all. Um, she considered it uh, both because of its lack of cultural specificity and how it got, uh, how it has been abused, but also because I think at some level she considered it um, fantasy and that I, uh, she told me once that she she thought magical realism was used as a as a label by publishers to excuse fantasy in books that they wanted to position as literary fiction. And uh, I mean, we could unpack that statement all night about all of this, but that was something she was obviously very uh, interested in and sensitive to. And uh, I remember dropping by one day and telling her about a book I was really enthusiastic about and saying it was magical realism and she snorted <laughs> and said, it's just fantasy. So, I mean, which is good, fantasy is good. So our title tonight was about environmentalism and pacifism, which is just a lot um, for an hour. So I've kind of been skirting around that, but I did want to touch on um, what has changed for writers uh, in the you know 50 years or so since my mother began writing on those topics directly and indirectly, and um, if if you can reflect a little bit on what what is different about the responsibility of a writer, if any, uh, today than 50 years ago with regard to those two massive topics? So 50 years ago would have been in the 1970s. I think of that time as being led by a lot of artists who were brave enough to take a stance and to say um, artists have a responsibility to the rest of the world. And what we do has to have a direct relationship and we need to lead people toward um, better humanitarian values. And I think that sadly to me, as I observe the content contemporary publishing world in America at least, I find that spirit has really devolved. Um, I do find that most of the literary fiction is focused on navel-gazing and solipsism as opposed to um, the artist taking an active responsibility. And I, I am basing this specifically on one instant that really broke my heart. It was early on in the pandemic in 2020, and I attended a virtual reading um, featuring two authors, one nonfiction and one fiction. Um, the fiction writer had written an environmental fiction debut novel, and she was younger, obviously. And the nonfiction writer was an acclaimed journalist. I think she had won the Pulitzer Prize before, and this environmental nonfiction book was, you know, well blurred by all the who and who's. Um, Bill McKibben. Bill, actually, I have met him, and I admire him very deeply as an environmentalist. But uh, so separately from that, but this um, this journalist was also featured here, and. Um, Either myself or somebody else asked asked a question during the Q and A and said, um, "So and so and so and so, uh, after reading your books, like, how would you like the reader to respond? Um, what would you like the reader to come away with?" 
And I was quite shocked by the response because um, the journalist said, my job as a journalist, I laid on the facts and how you change your behavior or not is not my problem. Um, I, that's not like my area of concern. And the novelist also said, well, I have never thought about how the reader should respond to my work. Um, my job as a writer is just essentially just to write. And this was a climate change novel. So the fact that these two people were discussing climate change and didn't, didn't propose any kind of actionable way you should come out of your own artwork was very disheartening to me because I have always believed that artists should be, um, should be leaders and to posit uh, how the world should be. I, I think that's one of the um, most important legacies of Ursula K. Le Guin, that she still remains that leading figure who stood up and said, there is this role that artists have to play. And her 2014 um, National Book Award speech that went viral, um, that is the example for that, um, the way she stood up for uh, artists who do care. So um, I am saddened, but I am also encouraged and inspired by Ursula's example. Yeah, that's that's really quite a question. Um, <laughs> when, you, when you sent it earlier, I, I've been thinking about it actually a lot. And um, for me, I, I struggled, you know, starting with, so my writing career started, um, my first book came out in 2019, and I got my agent like a few weeks after he who shall not be named was elected. And it was really, in, in you know, 2017 or 2016, it was really, it was like, um, and I had that thought, like, is it worth it anymore? Like, should, I mean, does this even matter? Like, does this matter to put all this energy and to care about it? And as, you know, I've moved through, you know, writing and publishing and all of that, I've started to, to to begin to understand what I feel like I might contribute with um, with my stories, and I feel like there um, there was this group that I've been in for many years that used to meet on Friday mornings um, through the Salome Institute for Jungian Studies, and it was um, we you know we read a lot of like, books about Jungian psychology and we talked a lot and we thought a lot, and you know there was an idea. Um, that really stuck with me around our ability to be effective as activists coming from actually doing personal work that allows us to show up and you know not sort of end up eating each other alive i mean if anyone's done any activism you know you know that you know it's very it can, it can end up being um, a really stressful and challenging experience because you know yes people are passionate but also if we haven't done the personal work to understand you know ourselves to have good boundaries to work through personal traumas to know how to talk through differences um, then it becomes very difficult to get much done mm -hmm. and to make headway. And everyone has a different role, for sure. I mean, I think there are definitely, there's definitely the role for the person who um, comes from a more like, overtly activist space. But for me, I think what I can offer is a way, like a, maybe a map, a roadmap maybe, for how you might 
take the trauma that you have experienced and um, maybe even the generational trauma that you carry and transmute that into um, personal agency and power in such a way that it allows you to be present in the world and to give what you have to give. Because I think that's, you know, we all have something different to give. It's, we're not all the same. Like, if you need someone to organize something logistically so that this amazing, you know, conference can happen, let's say, that's, that's not going to be me. You don't want me to have that job mm-hmm. <laughs> at all. You know, and I often say, that, oh, in the zombie apocalypse, you know, I'm not going to be high on your list for practical skills. But, um, but I will tell stories, I will take care of the kids, and I will manage the animals for you. <laughs> that I can do. And so, but, but also, you know, and, and I guess that's kind of what I'm really trying to say with the work that I'm doing is that that personal work, that kind of transmutation that I often will use something um, fantastic or magical to express is actually, I think, the really deeply important work we need to do to, to sustain change and to really move forward and build it. So that's just what I can offer. Those are, those are the things that um, I've, t- I've learned. Um, it's inter- in my first book, I, I wrote sort of an author's note because it's a little bit on the edge for young adults, definitely for older young adults. And I was trying to express why I wrote the book and sort of where I was coming from. And one of the gifts of of my writing experiences has been to see my um, education in a new way. So I was like high school dropout, and I, I did get through college. I graduated from college, but it took me a while. My you know kids were three and seven when I finally did, and you know very gratefully graduate. Um, I but I had wanted something else for myself. I had wanted, you know, I had wanted an kind of an Ivy League. I wanted to go to Merrill to, to Yale like Meryl Streep to Yale drama. I, I was I was into theater. That's what I wanted. That's what I saw for myself, and I that didn't happen for various reasons. But when I began to write my books, I saw that I had actually given myself the perfect education to write the books that I have to write. Um, all of my you know reading that I did that seemed kind of pointless. All of my mornings with the young group. All of you know the therapy that I have done. Um, all of the you know little tangents I've gone down um, and become obsessed with, and you know the acting training that I did. All of those things kind of came together to make me able to tell my story. And so that's the other thing I think that I might try to offer that's maybe more personal than political is a way for people to understand that you know, you're know, you creating your life, you're the protagonist of your own story, and you might be in a really hard part of the story right now, you might be in the deep, dark part of the forest, but um, keep keep going down the path. You know, there's something, there's something down the path for you and you have something really important to offer. Hmm. I think part of what you're pointing to is the difficulty of reconciling activism and writing and the how they require such different uh, skills traits and circumstances often I mean just something as simple as the the time and often the solitude that a writer requires to create which is not uh, exactly the circumstance in which direct action often takes place yeah 
that's true. I mean, I think that's really true. And I also think it's important um, for us to like be active as we can. So for instance, um, my partner is in the unprecedented brass band, which is the band you'll see if you go out to protest. They're wearing green t-shirts and they're uh, playing amazing music, walking down the street. He's the bass drummer. Um, he might be wearing a banana suit. And um, I go and I go on those protests with him when I can, but I definitely am careful I don't always go. For instance, if there are um, white supremacists and that's specifically the kind of protest it is, I've decided that I don't have to do that. I don't have to put myself in space with, with those people. Mm-hmm. I, I just, it's too much for me. Um, but other times I will come out and I'll protest when I can. And I, and I, think, and I think that's okay. Like, and I, I tell my, you know, I have to, I guess, you know, and maybe, maybe I could come out more, but I think that also, um, like, I really want people to do what they can do. And, and I think that prioritizing that care of myself makes me maybe more able to offer something that might even be more valuable than, you know, putting my body on the street, which I also think is an important thing to do. Let me float before we kind of wrap up with one more kind of technical question, if you will, which is about story and plot. And if I may, I'm going to read uh, a few words that Ursula wrote about the relationship between story and plot. Ursula said in her blog, I define story as a narrative of events, external or psychological, which moves through time or implies the passage of time and which involves change. I define plot as a form of story which uses action as its mode, usually in the form of conflict, and which closely and intricately connects one act to another, usually through a causal chain ending in a climax. So I added a little emphasis there of my own um, in two assertions that she made. First, that plot is subsidiary to, as a form of story, not the other way around, or they're not co-equal. And second, um, that modernism often conflates story and conflict, which she spoke and wrote about in several different settings. So I'm curious what you think about that. I have some thoughts about that. Um, So I really love that. Okay, because I really feel that, um, so in publishing, I think the way that um, those kinds, because I think there's kinds of stories. There are stories that really rely on plot, right? Um, That plot is the the sort of dominant engine. And I think that, um, and I I mean, I love stories like that, and I especially love um, film and TV that are like that sometimes. and I don't love books like that as much. It's interesting how I pick and choose and I kind of separate it out. But I think that I, I agree that, um, that story is the overarching element that we are working with. I think it's like the sea we're swimming in is the sea of story. And when I think about story, um, that brings me out, you know, kind of to, um, the idea of the collective unconscious and you know, so sort of Jungian imagery of the collective unconscious being this big sea that, you know, and we're sort of navigating the, our little ego ship in that big sea. And so I think that coming to that place and the idea of, you know, that the sort of carrier bag idea of fiction where we're just sort of gathering things into the bag and letting them interact. And I think we were even talking about this like at first when we're writing, it's like kind of we're just getting stuff. And then they have to, but they do have to line up into a plot. They, they do. I mean, it's the reason why, um, like we were talking earlier about an earlier iteration of, of my second book that had simply too many characters to work. Like plot, 
plot and story, though, were getting lost, I think. I think in an ideal world, um, plot is there to just to serve story. It's there to sort of like, um, to shepherd story along. It's like story's little Sherpa that brings it where it needs to go. Yeah. <clears throat> so I basically agree with um, Ursula's quote pretty much in full. I think what I can add to that is um, a lot of contemporary literary fiction is anti-plot. Um, when you are set, when you are being called your literary fiction book is plot driven, it's a backhanded compliment. It's not necessarily something you want to see in a review. Having said that, a lot of authors who have read my book, um, my friends, have asked me, "How did you plot your book?" So I know that there's something in there that they want to find out from me and steal, <laughs> um, and, and I tell them. But um, so the plot is not present in every story. It, you, you're able to um, create a narrative without much plot. And by that I mean, um, there are some books that I really enjoy reading and I even say I love, but then if somebody, if my mom asks me, so what's that book about? I'm like unable to tell her exactly what happened. And I will tell her something like, it's about this older man and a younger woman who get married and basically at the end the marriage is over, but like it's really hard for me to remember what happened in the middle. And it's not because they're just standing there in their apartment fighting the whole time, they go places. But just moving the characters around, which is what your writing instructor will tell you, if you have no idea what's happening, you want to add some plot, just move them. Literally get them to physically another space, and that's plot. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not the only thing about plot. Remember what Ursula said. She said that there is causality. So incident A has to have um, some sort of cause-effect relationship with the next incident, and so on and so forth, leading to the climax, and then catharsis, and this is generally what we understand to be plot. And this isn't because we learn it. I mean, Aristotle taught this, so it's, it's been around humanity forever, but it's not because we learn it that we recognize it as such. It's almost instinctive. We, un we perceive plot instinctively, and that's the part we tell our friends excitedly, and then they meet this guy, and then they get into a car accident, and then boom, this was the secret. So that's, that's the plot, because we're able to tell it to our friends. It's not the evocative, poetic beauty, or the um, internal monologue, or the um, emails that, long emails that the protagonist sends to her best friend, although those might be valuable for other reasons. I really enjoy plot, I think. Going back to my Korean worldview that informs my literature, my um, my writing, I think I enjoy plot because of the causality. Because the world that Koreans experience and think about is highly um, connected and knitted together by cause and effect. We don't really believe in coincidence, just like Michelle said earlier. We think that things are fated. So for me, the plot part came very naturally because that's the world that I already live in. I mean, it's interesting, even the question, how do you plot your novel, it makes an assumption, right, that you are plotting it. I think there are writers who arrive at a plot, but they don't plot their novel. Um, I, I liked what you just said um, about causality as opposed to conflict, which was the other element Ursula pointed to, because that is how 
I received your writing as well, that it was the causal relationships and complex and nonlinear causal relationships that were carrying things along, that were the plot, if you will. And although there, in both of your recent novels there is conflict, neither of them to me seemed to be conflict-based narratives. Uh, I don't know if you'd agree with that, and I'm curious whether that, if you do agree with it, whether that's something you sought to do um, whether that was in your mind as you wrote, or um, it just happened that way because of who you are. I think that that's a very interesting observation, Theo, because my book uh, covers large periods of war and colonialism and brutal violence, and the fact that you said it's not driven by conflict. Well, it's quite true, and it probably has to do with my person, because what I was more interested in wasn't the conflict aspect per se, but trying to see things from the point of view of both sides. I was always interested in that. I was always interested in getting behind the eyes of the aggressor as well as the victim, and trying to see what kind of human commonality there could be there and what kind of empathy we could derive from that situation, especially over a period of time, because those two parties, their relationship will develop and change. Mm -hmm. I think that's so interesting that you talked about it. I think maybe we're onto something around um, not around um, loving our villains, you know, our villains. I mean, I think it's hard. I mean, in, in, um, in Summer in the City of Roses, there is one character who's somewhat completely villainous, although, um, you know, like the stepfather is sort of a, he's, he's sort of irredeemable in a certain way to me. So I talked to my editor a lot about that, saying like, isn't he just like, you know, kind of too cartoonish? Is he like the mean, evil guy in Scooby-Doo, you know, that's, I mean, I just felt like he was kind of a cartoon villain in a certain way, but then as I, wrote into him a little bit more, I began to really understand who he was and what he represented. And as I began to understand that, um, sort of this line rose up about why he was the way he was, that he was really deeply afraid of um, the non-binary character who is his stepchild and and this you know, um, interracial couple and their lovely children that he's confronted by, that's, that's the future he's afraid of. He's, he's afraid. And once I understood that fear was there, the cartoonishness, hopefully, for the reader, but at least for me, kind of dissipated and, and resolved. And I mean, I, 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 love, I love all of my characters because, because I know them and I understand them. Some of them I feel like, you know, I, I can say that I don't feel that some of them deserve good stuff. <laughs> or maybe some of them get what they deserve, I don't know. But um, but I I I want to have I want to have empathy. I want to understand them and I think that if it was going for a more conflict-based story, there would be none of that. There would be none of that. And I think that sometimes that you're right, like sometimes conflict is what is mistaken for plot. That's the thing that you can say like, oh, and then, you know, he he was like terribly abusive to his partner, you know, and then he was like a jerk at work and really sexist, you know, like all of these things that, you know, this terrible character might have done. And then he, you know, and then, you know, in the end, you know, he got his job taken away and his partner went off with this really beautiful woman and he was just left alone, mm -hmm. you know, or something, you know, so I, that that's a plot, you know, that's like a TV show that you could see. Um, and it's a plot I would be into to be like, yeah, but on the other hand, I think that 
trying to dig in more com within, with more complexity and also looking at pacifism and what, what peace really requires, I think it's that understanding of the other, even if the other, like it was so interesting to me that we got you know points of colonizer points of view. Um, in my first book, there was a point of view character that was definitely an abusive person in my main character's past that I was really interested in understanding. But I think that um, those are the things that we do personally as well to to heal ourselves and yeah. you know move through personal and political trauma. Some understanding, not you know not that we're um, not that everything is equal, but that it's understood. Yeah, I mean, I think reading and watching and consuming art and entertainment uh, with an eye to where conflict is the point of what you're reading or watching versus where it is a vehicle to another point. I, I try to do that and it's really interesting and also quite depressing at times to see how much of the time conflict is the point. And it isn't really the point, it's just what gets filled in uh, for lack of another point. And on that upbeat note, I'd like to take a, a moment first and foremost to thank you for the beautiful art that you make so full of um, of humanity and lacking in irony <laughs> and uh, just wonderful writing. Thank you so much for being here tonight. And uh, thank you, Lit Literary Arts, and thank you to all of you for coming tonight. And we hope to see you again soon. Thank you, Theo, for moderating. Thank you so much. That was Theo Downs Guin with Juhei Kim and Michelle Ruiz Kyle in conversation about Better Worlds. Ursula K. Le Guin's Legacy of Pacifism and Environmentalism, recorded live at Literary Arts on July 15, 2022. This has been Literary Arts The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. Special thanks to Literary Arts marketing staff Jyoti Roy and Hope Levy and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music and thank you to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.